Listen, the very first thing that Pastor Bobby ever said to me, I came here, I had this interview for an internship. The very first thing he ever said to me was, what is your 15-year plan? Like the very first thing, not even a hello, but what's your 15-year plan? So I was in a group, it was a group interview for an internship here. I was a 20-year-old child at the time. I had no idea what I was having for lunch later that day let alone what I would be doing in the year 2025. The other guy who was, you know, interviewing for the spot, he had, you know, a long list of goals, just his dreams completely written out. He had, you know, an incredibly eloquent manifesto of every single possibility in his path forward at Cornerstone. He had it together. My answer was, well, you know, I don't really know. I have no idea what my 15-year plan is. I just have no clue. I want you to imagine now, Pastor and Susan just staring blankly at me, just like, like waiting for me to just conjure up something, you know, some kind of forward-thinking expectation for the future. They did not get that from me that day. I, I, I had nothing. I just, I had no idea. And fortunately, both God and Bobby Harrell were on my side that day, and they gave me a chance. And, uh, and here, here we are, you know. The first time I ever really preached this sermon was at this collegiate showcase. You know, I did a few things as a child, you know, growing up in the church, I had opportunities to speak, but the first time I really did like a sermon, it was part of this collegiate thing uh, as I was getting my degree. And Bobby and Bobby showed up at the at the showcase. And so I was super nervous. You know, I did okay. It was nothing spectacular or anything, but you know, I thought like, okay, that that was fairly decent at least. I didn't bomb pastor's words to me. Well, it wasn't too boring. And so I say all that to say, it's been a decade, and here we are. Over a decade later, and this is my moment of redemption, right? Pastor now, for this grand moment, is off and away, literally in a different country, uh, and he's not even here to, to, you know, call me out for my moment or to, you know, praise me or to tell me I'm boring or anything, which honestly I'm not too mad about. Um, you know, it's, it's okay. It's okay. We're, we're good. Listen, at this point, I'm pretty comfortable uh, singing with my church family. I'm, I'm pretty comfortable lifting our praises up together and worshiping together. That's, that, that's, that's part of what I love. I love the corporate attitude of proclaiming the goodness of God together in worship. When it comes to speaking, this is a little bit more of a, a push outside of my comfort zone for me. Bobby knew something about the 15-year plan, right? I, I had no idea what was up. Uh, I, honestly, I didn't even think I'd be doing music when I came here. Uh, but Bobby has a, a particular way of forward thinking. He knew something about the 15-year the plan, and part of it was finding my voice. You know, not just my singing voice, but knowing what I believe and then feeling empowered to proclaim what I believe. So as I was preparing for today, I was just so stressed out about what I would say, how I would speak for the content of this chapter, because we're closing out our series. Like, it's supposed to be a big deal. We're closing out this massive, multi-month series that we've been studying through. I was worried about how boring I would be, or how eloquent I wouldn't be, or how deeply I could convey the meaning and application of our text today. And so then, as I'm studying, it's like a real twist of Christ-like humor. All of those worries were just squashed in the opening verses of chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13.1 says this, 
If I speak in human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So Paul is being hyperbolic on purpose. He is directly referencing the Corinthians' over-application of speaking in tongues as a way to remind them, this is not about your gifting. I could speak in even the tongues of angels. I could speak in heavenly languages, and it wouldn't even matter if I didn't have love. We have to really listen to the voice of Paul as we read the text. Read it like it's a real person saying it. I, I could speak in the languages of angels. It wouldn't even matter if I didn't approach what I was saying with love. So one piece of backstory here, Corinth is famous for the production of bronze metal. This is going to come up again later in the chapter, so this is actually something to remember. Uh, I don't think it's accidental that Paul compares their fruitlessness to the instruments of their own handiwork. What I mean by that is this. He says, you, by speaking without love, by just clamoring off with the gifts, you're like a loud bronze symbol which you made it's in your own form it's in your own ability it's in your own strength that's what you sound like you sound self-centered because all you're doing is just making noise it's not purposeful not only is your lack of love distracting like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal it's also self-serving and it draws attention to yourself your production, your accomplishments, and your own creations rather than pointing toward the glorious love of Jesus. So then, as I find my own voice to be comfortable speaking to you now, it's critical for me to keep in mind that it's not any skill set that I have or any opportunity that's been afforded to me. I can have the world's biggest stage, but as long as my heart isn't set on portraying the love of Christ, then my sound is not only purposeless, but it's distracting and a detraction from the gospel. So then I wonder, how many of us have lost the ability to speak in the language of love while at the same time actively pursuing the spotlight of our gifts? Remember, we're coming out of the great spiritual gifts chapter. Chapter 12 is all about the, the beauty of the diversity of the church the unity that they had in Christ, and then the Corinthian church's ignorance towards either of those things. This is where Paul likens the believers to one unified body working together to pursue the mission of Christ. Remember this, let's go backwards to chapter 12 because it's really important. Chapter 12 ends this way in verse 29. Are all apostles? What's the answer? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? Do all do miracles? No. Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But desire the greater gifts. And I will show you an even better way. And this is the transition now into the most famous chapter of the entire Bible. The love chapter. Right? As we've seen all throughout this study, the Corinthians are desperately set of projecting an image of hyper-spirituality through the public utilization of speaking in tongues. They're quick to boast in their lofty abilities, while at the same time blindly tolerating and endorsing immorality, greed, and idolatry. So Paul, he realizes they've completely abandoned the actual Christian ethic of love, and then he challenges them with the understanding that there's something so much greater and even better than the mechanics of their gifting. 
So, this is chapter 12. Now we transition to chapter 13. We know that the entire context is in direct correlation now to the misapplication of their spiritual gifts and Paul's redirection toward a better way. You know, I think about 1 Corinthians 13. You've heard it at every single wedding you've ever been to. You know, like I free, if I did your wedding, I, I spoke this chapter at your wedding. You know, it's not necessarily a problem. It, it's, it's still an applicable thing to understand what love is. But by truly understanding what the context of this, what these verses are all about, you have a much greater and deeper appreciation for them. This is a wonderful and a beautiful chapter of the Bible. But when we understand the fuller Corinthian context, the picture is so much greater. Gordon Fee, who's a, a theologian that we've quoted a lot throughout this sermon series, he says this, The love affair with this love chapter has also allowed it to be read regularly apart from its context, which does not make it less true, but causes one to miss too much regarding Paul's own concerns about the situation in Corinth. Remember, the letter to the church in Corinth is one giant rebuke because the congregants don't have the correct or the proper answer to the question, what is a spiritual person? So Paul's going to show us the real answer to what is a spiritual person. And it begins with the ultimacy of love. In verses 1 through 3, it says this, If I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mystery and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains but don't have love, I'm nothing. And if I give away all of my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to boast but don't have love, I gain nothing. You know, if someone were to, if someone were to ask you to define love, I'm, I'm curious what the answers would be. You know, what words will we use? Will we take a cue from our cultural understanding of what love is? You know, I listen to a lot of music. Like, you know, it's kind of my job. So I, I listen to a lot of music. Um, and there's something special about, like, a sad love song. You know, I, like, every time Adele drops an album, I just, I'm just sad for a few days. And I'm happy about it. Because, you know, you just want to feel, you just want to feel it, you know? And so I get it. You know, we love sad music, but if we were to just gain our understanding of what love is from, let's say, pop culture or the cultural perception of what love is, then what's going to happen is we're going to have a very skewed and misapplied version of what God really wants us to believe love is. There's a couple of things to define from the beginning. The Bible has several different forms of love. And if you've been in church you know, for a while, you've probably heard of all of these. Um, some of the most frequently used Greek terms for love are these. There's phileo. This is ethical, loyal, friendly love. There's eros, which is sensual, romantic, passionate love. There's storge, which is instinctual family love. Like, I, I just love my children. I don't have to try to love them. Uh, well, anyway. Uh, agape love. This is selfless, unconditional, as displayed through God's active display of love. And this is antithetical to the 2021 definition of what love is. You know, we, we like to think of love as a feeling, but emotional love that's rooted in feeling is fleeting. Emotional love can be fallen in and out of. Emotional love seeks fulfillment, and as soon as that fulfillment is gone or decreased in its visibility, love rooted in feeling seeks love elsewhere. And it's why marriages fail. It's why friendships fail. It's why allegiances fail. It's because we're looking for love as rooted in the feeling of our emotions. 
As soon as those no longer stand, then we no longer have love. You see the problem here. Which is why then this chapter deals exclusively with agape love. This is the word to describe how God loves. How he sources his love to us. But also it describes his very nature of love. Agape love expects nothing in return and it is by its very definition sacrificial. Agape love is the sign of maturity for a believer. How much I love is the mark of how mature I am. God cares more about how full your heart is of love than your head is with knowledge. And if our heart is full of love, then we're so much more mature than we would be if we knew everything. Because that's the point. It's also the sign of the mature church. You know that you're in a church full of mature believers when the love is overflowing sacrificially for one another. It's why when we talked about the spiritual gifts, we really emphasize it's not about what you bring to the table. It's about you having a seat at the table and you having the opportunity to serve the others around you. It's not about how great you are, about how great your gifts are. It's not, that's, not the, that's not the point of spiritual gifts. And the reason why that's not the point is because your love should be so instinctually driven that all you want to do is serve the others however you are available to do so. It's the sign of a mature church. This is the love that Paul's talking about here. And at this point, you know, we've been in Corinthians for, you know, a minute. You can surely understand why the Corinthians are lacking and in desperate need for this type of love. Look at the breakdown of these verses. Verse 1, he says, I could speak with all of the eloquence in the world, Verse 2, he says, I could operate with the most giftedness in the world. And then verse 3, he says, I could distribute my wealth and my materials in the most sacrificial way in the world. But if there's no agape love present in my operation, then my speech, my gifts, and my sacrifices are not only distracting, but they're self-seeking in attention. Without agape love, our lives are neither beautiful nor edifying. Read this again. Paul says he has nothing and gains nothing without the love personified in the person of Jesus Christ. So Jesus, I want you to think about this. Jesus, when he's speaking to his disciples just before his crucifixion, he displays and commands this same self-sacrificing agape love. John 15, verses 12 and 13 says, this is, again, this is Jesus talking to his disciples. This is my command. Love one another. As I have loved you, because no one has greater love than this, how? To lay down his life for his friends. Love is ultimate in nature, and love should be preeminent in our interactions. Love should overshadow our own spotlights. Love should point toward the person and the example of God, and this is why he's gifted us, to be able to be more complete and a clear display of his love to others. Love is ultimate. Love is the key, and love should be the overarching umbrella that everything else we do, operate, say, and act, and interact. It should all be within the umbrella of love, because love is ultimate. Second, there, there's an activity of love. If you're in your journals, uh, you'll see that we're in a new paragraph now. We've been trying to break up the, the whole thing by paragraphs instead of verse structure, right? So as you look at your journals, as you look in your Bibles, this starts a, a new paragraph in verse, well, I mean, what verse are we on? Verse 4? Verse 4. Paul wants the Corinthian people to understand that the ultimacy of love, 
Uh, but he also then shifts now towards the practicality of love, the action, the activity of love. Understanding chapter 13 in its context, it transforms the way that you look at these verses. I promise, there's something that's different about the way that we're going to look at these verses than you've ever heard before. Understanding chapter 13 is transforming when you understand what chapter 12 and 14 are all about. For every love is not statement that we come across, Paul is directly referencing an attitude or an action that the Corinthians have displayed and he's already rebuked them for. So this is not just a, this is not just a beautiful love chapter. It is, but half of this chapter is a harsh rebuke. So we need to read it that way. Another thing to recognize is that these qualities of love are not adjectives. So we think of love, okay, patient. It's patient love. We are patient. No, these are really actually verbs in that if you have agape love, you are currently being patient. If you have love, you are currently being kind. So we need to keep that in mind too. These are not adjectives, these are verbs, which is why it's the activity of love. Love manifests itself in action, not in feeling. We start with two positives. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 says this, love is patient and love is kind. Love is patient is first. Let's put that up. Love is patient. Being patient is to be long-tempered with people. You know, in some of the older translations, it says that you are long-suffering. You choose to suffer long in your crave of retaliation. So someone does something against you and you say, wow, all that I want right now is to retaliate against this person, but instead I choose to suffer in this moment as long as it takes to display the patience involved in agape love. Because love is being patient. Understanding that my acting of patience is ultimately reflective of my love. Love is kind. Being kind is so much more and greater than being nice. It's so much more than an attitude. It's not just an attitude of kindness. This is to be useful for someone else's sake. So the way that you manifest the action of kindness in love is to do acts of kindness for someone else. Patience and kindness are first on purpose because they are directly reflective of God's attitude toward humanity. And we know this because in Romans, Paul says, do you despise the riches of who? God's kindness, his restraint and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? This is the very first two because Paul wants to drive home the fact that without these two, you don't even have a relationship with God. This is how God shows his love to us. The, first off, let's, let's talk about the two, patience and kindness. Because without these, you don't have access to Christ. God is lovingly patient with us and that even in our most desperate and guilty state, he withholds his wrath from us. That's loving patience. He chooses to extend a long-suffering attitude in response to our rebellion against him as opposed to retaliating against us. God is lovingly kind to us in that he not only offers us his mercy, but he bestowed it to us in the most sacrificial act of kindness of all time for our benefit. And that's what active loving kindness looks like. So these are two fantastic, wonderful, God-inspired love is statements. But now Paul shifts over to some open rebukes of love is not statements. Let's start with the first one in verse four. Love does not envy. 
I don't think it's a surprise at all that after he says, hey, I'm going to remind you how great God is, and now I'm going to illuminate how far away from the point you are. I don't think it's an accident that he starts with the Corinthians' envy, because it's one of the greatest and biggest themes throughout this entire letter. The Corinthians split themselves up into camps and divisions by their perceived superiority of their gifts and the loftiness of their leaders. Their envy was obvious and deeply immature. So in your journals, what I want you to do, if, next to 1 Corinthians 13.4, I want you to write 1 Corinthians 3.3. 3. This is our first parallel to an earlier rebuke from the chapter. 1 Corinthians 3.3 3 says this, For since there is envy and strife among you, are you not worldly and behaving like mere humans? So I have two sons, Levi and Jude. They're, I think they're in here, actually. Uh, it, we're, we're deep in the I want a toy because you have it stage. Like, deep in it. It's, this, is, this is my life. There's no argument that I deal with in my home more than the one where one person wants the toy that the other one's playing with. It's like one of life's more predictable moments. Um, this is jealousy. This is envy. It says that it's not just that I want what you have, but I don't want you to have it. When we act out of envy, because remember, these are all verbs, they're not adjectives, so envy is an active envy. We're acting like children, which is another peril, by the way, that Paul is going to bring up in a minute. In Matthew 27, this is, this is how big of a deal envy is in the Bible and why Paul is so quick to illuminate it. In Matthew 27, we learn that envy is the reason for Christ's crucifixion. It says, for he, Jesus, knew it was because of envy that they had handed him over to be crucified. Being envious is more than just a superficial jealousy. This is not a matter of wanting to play with someone else's toys. This is a matter of not wanting someone else to have it. It's rooted in resentment, and it's a life that is rooted in envious display. It's a life absent of love. There's a reason why it's the first rebuke. You cannot be love if you are actively envious against others. Love is not boastful. So just while we're here, let's parallel quickly to 1 Corinthians 8, chapter 2. It says, if anyone thinks he knows anything, listen to his sass here. Paul is so sassy. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. The attitude of boastfulness only makes a show of yourself. It's a form of pride that's usually rooted in insecurity. And when we spend more of our time and energy bragging about ourselves than pointing to the goodness of God working through others, then we are not acting in love. So the question would be, are you the topic of all of your conversations? Love is not arrogant. In, verse, in chapter 4, verse 6, if you're making notes, he says, Now, brothers and sisters... I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that when you learn from us the meaning of the saying, nothing beyond what is written, the purpose is that none of you will be arrogant, favoring one person over another. He is openly, again, in, in the famous love chapter, he's reiterating the point that these people are so full of themselves. Arrogance and boastfulness are similar in that they're both rooted in pride, but boastfulness is the verbalization of an arrogant heart. So they're tied together. One of them is a, a very active, visible display of pride, and the other one's a deep-rooted, much easier-to-hide version of pride. 
The problem for the Corinthians in regards to their pride was that they not only spoke highly of themselves in boastfulness, they also believed highly of themselves in arrogance. This is antithetical to agape love. Remember, agape love is rooted in its self-sacrifice toward others. Love is not rude. Do you remember, it was just like a couple weeks ago, we did a Lord's Supper communion right after Easter, and we talked about the Corinthians' misapplication of communion within the, the church body. It's in chapter 11, verse 22. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you, and listen to, the, listen to the strength of this term, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I don't praise you in this matter. You know, I, I can think of a lot of rude things that happen in the church because we're full of people, you know, and, and some of you are, you know, rude at times. Um, you know, I, I, can, I can think of a lot of rude things that can happen. But causing factions within the body across socioeconomic lines during a moment of remembrance of the unifying factor of the commonality that we have in Christ, to do it then, I just can't think of anything more rude than to say, I have more access to Christ because of who I am and the circumstances that I'm in. I, I just can't think of anything more rude than that. And so Paul is referencing their rudeness to one another. Paul agreed, I mean, he says, you despise the church of God enough to humiliate each other? And you want me to praise you? Absolutely not. Love is not self-seeking. This is a link to chapter 10, verse 24, where it says, no one is to seek his own good, but instead to seek the good of another person. The city of Corinth is home to like incredible amounts of idolatry and paganism, and yet their greatest idol was not the idol in the temple, it was the idol of themselves. They actively sought out their own good over the good of others. Do you remember Paul's appeal to seek out the common good? That kind of thinking is the exact opposite of self-seeking love. Look for the common good. What does the body need? Love is not irritable. Other versions here will we'll translate it as love is not easily angered. Love is not provoked. If you have a, a version or a translation of the Bible that uses the word easily, I want you to know easily is not in there in the Greek. It's just not there. It's love is not angered. Love is not provoked. Love is not irritable. Using the word easily, it just softens, and it's not in the one that we're looking at now, but it's in a lot of translations. It softens the, the strength of this statement. Agape love is not angered. Agape love is not provoked. Agape love is not irritable. Verse, uh, six, verse, or chapter 6, verse 8, it says, Instead, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do this to brothers and sisters. Talking about them just constantly suing each other, bringing lawsuits to each other, because they're just so irritated and angry with each other. They can't solve anything. They're just easily provoked to anger. We should have the wisdom, the experience, and the maturity to be able to handle matters without wanting to seek revenge or to give in to provocation. We should be quick to forgive rather than to illuminate the irritations from others. Love is not a recorder of wrongs. In verse 5. It does not keep a record of wrongs. This is a Greek accounting term. So, you know, this was used to denote a ledger or a mathematical count. Godly, agape love doesn't keep a ledger against another person. 
It doesn't keep count of how many times your spouse has wronged you. That's not agape love. It's actually the same word that's used to show that God pardons us. God never says he's going to keep track of our wrongdoing. In Isaiah, and then it's reaffirmed in Hebrews chapters 8 and 10. It's uh, all over. There's a statement that God's telling us he will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. So God's pardon of our sins is antithetical to a wrong keeper. If you just keep records of each other's wrongs, you're not acting in accordance to the pardon and grace that God's bestowed upon you. God chooses not to hold your sins against you. So then how dare we turn around and keep track of one another's sins? And this is fathers not to your children, spouses not to your partners, friends not to your circles, because nothing destroys a relationship like the godless love of recorded wrongs. If you want a good marriage, don't dwell on the record of the, you know, the 10% of things that irritate you about your spouse. Focus on the 90% that you, know, you love and you fell in love with. Specific now to Corinth, these people were champion recorders of wrongdoing. I mean, the, the reason why we have the letter is because someone told on someone else. And you, you know that from the very, I mean, the very first chapter. Well, I, I heard some rumors about you guys. They couldn't figure out how to resolve any disputes because all that they could do was complain about each other and hold on to the grudges without resolution. And this then references back to chapter 6, verse 7. As it is, to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? And to hold a record of the wrongs, because that's not acting in accordance to agape love. Love is not a rejoicer of evil. Verse 6 says, love finds no joy in unrighteousness. Do you remember when the Corinthian church thought that their tolerance for unrighteousness made them more spiritual? What was Paul's response to that? He's in 5.2. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Why are you rejoicing in this unrighteousness? Why are you finding delight in evil? Shouldn't you be mourning these things? So then the question is, do you find joy in suppressing the sin of others? Do you feel more spiritual when you do? Do you find joy in exposing the sin of others? Do you, because you're not acting in accordance to agape love. Regardless of your position on the line of suppressing or exposing sin, we ought to mourn the unrighteousness around us in the hope that the hearts can be molded and softened to repentance and back towards a habit of godliness. If you truly love someone, you won't rejoice when they sin or falter. So then it turns back to positive. So there's that, that's all that open rebuke. And again, they are open rebukes in reference to what he's already yelled at them for. He's going to turn it back to a few positive statements. This one is the, the parallel to not a rejoicer of truth, but instead rejoices, wait, what did I just say? Not a rejoicer of evil, comma, but rejoices in the truth. This is the other side of the coin in finding joy and unrighteousness. All the energy given to finding delight in the woes of our enemies could instead be funneled into a deep appreciation and joy for the truth of holiness. Love is a protector. Verse 7 says, love bears all things. The nuance to the Greek term for bears, it means to cover with support and protection. 
It's like the, the roof of your dwelling in a storm. Love shields you. Love protects you. Love covers you and bears the blow of enemy attacks. Love is trusting. The verse says, believes all things. So this isn't like a blind belief. This is an expectant belief. This is to place confidence in something, or rather someone, to show them that they are trustworthy. Love is hopeful. Love hopes all things. Love is endlessly optimistic. Uh, we live, I mean, we live like right across the street. You guys can visit whenever you want to. But um, we have one of those community mailboxes that's got, you know, 10 different homes in the same box. And so we're just the worst. Like, we, we can't find our mail keys ever. And when we do find them, it's been, you know, three weeks since the last time we checked the mail. And when we go open up the mailbox, like, it's just, you could tell that our mailman hates us. Because it's, like, he doesn't even try to make it pretty anymore. He just is like, I'm just going to, it's your problem. Um, and it is our problem because, I mean, it, it is a problem. We know this about ourselves. Anyway, when we check the mail, we, it's always like, you know, we've got to take some kind of tool to get it out. But when we do, we, we spread it all out on the, on the kitchen table. And in, you know, a one-week period, do you know how many Capital One offers I have? I, this is not a joke. <laughs> like, every single time I check the mail, there are at least six Capital One pre-approved offers in my mailbox. That is endlessly optimistic. <laughs> it's an optimistic hope that we will refuse to take fi- failure as final. It's understanding that we will continue to pursue love even when the circumstances don't demand it. That we will continue to pursue love because we have hope that one day the circumstances will allow for it. Love is perseverant. In verse 7 it says it endures all things. When Matthew and Mark use this same term in their gospel accounts, they use the phrase endureth to the end. It's a military term that means to stand your ground. It means that you will be faithful in battle regardless of attack and you will endure all things in the name of agape love. Then here's the transition. Notice, so then, that, that's all that. Now we're starting a new paragraph, but we're still with one more uh, thing. Notice that this new paragraph now, to emphasize and establish love's final characteristic, and one now that's going to be Paul's base argument for the remainder of the chapter. Verse 8 says, Love never ends. Love has been present for all of eternity, and it will remain throughout our forever presence with God. Look at the list, guys. I mean, I'm overwhelmed just thinking about it because I can never fully love like this. You know, if if these are active terms, like there's never been a moment where I was all of these things and none of those things. There's just just never been a time. And I, I get overwhelmed looking at the list. I'm curious, do any of these active displays of love stand out to you? Are there any areas that God maybe is currently challenging you to grow in? Think about the people in your life, the children in your life, the spouses, the, I mean, hopefully only one spouse, but collective spouses, your spouse, you know, or spouses, you know, whatever, like your coworkers, your friends. Maybe God is calling you to love them, but not from your perception of what love is, but from God's definition of what love is. Put your name in there. 
Jeremy is patient. Jeremy is kind. Jeremy is a rejoicer of truth, a protector. It's like once you start getting to that list, it's like, oh, that's not true. I'm just not those things. I mean, sometimes I am. Sometimes I display those things, but I don't know that you could define me by those things. Fortunately, Jesus is patient. And Jesus is kind. Jesus is a rejoicer of truth. He's a protector. He's trusting, hopeful, persevering, and unfailing. I think part of adopting the love of God in our activity is to understand that we don't have the strength to do it on our own. This is why when Paul lists the spiritual fruits in Galatians, that says, when you are indwelled with the Spirit, here's what you should expect. The first thing on the list is love. Because we can't do it on our own. We can only do it with the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. So love is ultimate. Love is active. And love is perpetual. The Corinthians were so enamored by their display of gifts in the present situation, but not just the gifts, more specifically how the gifts benefited them, so much so that they missed out on the whole purpose of the Holy Spirit. So now we're, like, we're switching to the closing argument of this chapter. Paul encourages them to view the purpose of the Holy Spirit's work as building and pointing to the future. Don't get so caught up in what's happening right now. There's a much bigger story ahead. Don't be so caught up in how great your gifting makes you look and feel in the present. That's a very short-sighted view. Instead, view your lives within the framework of God's future. The present world is tainted by sin and you know, stilted love, but the future is marked by newness. It's marked by perfection, and it's defined by the righteousness of who is dwelling in it. The Corinthians see themselves speaking in tongues, and they think, this, this is what it means to be a spiritual person, because I'm speaking in the languages of angels. This is what it means to be a spiritual person. This is as good as it gets. And Paul is reminding them, just wait. The present is temporary and fleeting. And if you think this is the pinnacle, then you're missing the grand finale of being present with Jesus for all of eternity. So, love never fails. Verses 8 to 10, let's read this together. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge... It'll come to an end. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. So my, the first question that I get reading this is, what in the world does eschatology have to do with ethics? Right? Eschatology is the study of you know, what, whatever's next. What, what does that have to do with the way that I'm living? What's the correlation between my morality and the new life we have when we're forever with God? And the connection is that our very destiny is love. We can get so wrapped up in the spiritual and important things of right now that the only thing that really matters, that we're really missing sight of completely, is the thing that extends from this life into eternity in perpetuity. Will there be prophecy in heaven? No. There's, just, there's no need for that. Will God speak through a prophet to get our attention? No. No. He will have fully enraptured us with his presence, Right? Will we need to speak in tongues in heaven? No, there won't be any need. Will we need to have special words of knowledge or try to understand what the Spirit would have us to do to move forward? No, there's just no need. These are all temporary provisions with a future fulfillment. Instead, focus on the only thing that lasts, 
which is love. Love is the foundation and the framework for the operation of our gifts. Love, love gives our gifts intention and purpose, and love outlives any gifts that we have. Paul gives us two metaphors to drive home the point. He says, that, well, the first being maturation into adulthood, the second being the reflection of a mirror. In verse 11, it says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put aside childish things. You know, the Corinthians were enamored with the gifting of the Spirit in the same way that a child becomes fully invested in something that they inevitably won't need much longer. It's like, anytime I buy my kids a snack from Costco, they don't like it anymore. But I've got it in bulk now, but they don't want it. And so my pantry is full of, you know, Scooby-Doo fruit snacks. They don't like Scooby-Doo fruit snacks. They like, you know, gummy bears now, whatever, whatever it is. Um, it, the Corinthians are so focused on the present necessity of their gifts that they realize, oh, we're not even going to need these in a minute. But they're so focused on what's present right now. It's because a childlike frame of reference in time doesn't see the big picture. The Corinthians didn't see the big picture. You should expect that a child will act and speak like a child. It's, it's inevitable. They're children. But you should also expect that same child to grow up and mature into a fully functioning adult. In following Jesus, there's a time when you should feel the weight of expectation to put childish things behind you. Instead of focusing on the strength of yourself, turn the attention toward others and love them with the love that God has demonstrated to you. And that's what it means to grow in spiritual maturity. Verse 12 says this. This is the other metaphor that, God, that Paul is using now. For now we see only reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. So remember, at the very beginning, I mentioned that you know, Corinth was a, a big bronze producer. It was one of their, their biggest exports. One of their most popular items of production were bronze mirrors. They were polished so cleanly and so smoothly that you could see a reflection of yourself in it. You have to get rid of your understanding of what a mirror is, like in your bathroom, a glass reflective mirror. It's, it's not what we're talking about here. When Paul mentions a mirror, they understand immediately because when you imagine yourself looking at the reflection of yourself in a metal mirror, you understand that you're not really seeing the real picture. You're just kind of seeing a, you know, a, a vagueness of your likeness. It gives you a general idea, but it doesn't allow you to make things out in full detail. This is the kind of mirror that Paul is talking about here, a bronze metal a mirror. As followers of Jesus, there are some things that we don't know because we don't see everything clearly right now. You know, when will, when will these injustices stop? Or why did that thing happen to me that I can't stop thinking about? Or, you know, why are people actively working against me? Why haven't my prayers been answered? We just, we just don't have the answers to those because we don't see clearly at this very moment. 1 John 3, 2 says, Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. In the future, you will see clearly without the need for a mirror. The gifts give us a fuzzy view in comparison to the clarity of our future reality. The gifts allow us to have a glimpse of who God is and how we should love each other. But when we are no longer bound to the temporary nature of our present, we will see Jesus as clear as he really is. In verse 13 it says, Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. 
Faith is not just to believe. This is really to be faithful. Remember, these are all active words. This is to display faithfulness. Not just what you believe, but it turns into how you live because of what you believe. This faith looks like a faithful walk with Jesus, knowing that he reigns eternally. And then hope is a confident belief and expectation of the fulfillment of God's promises. It's not a wish. It's not like saying, oh, I, I hope that I'll you know, lose all the weight after I go to the gym one time. It's not, it's not just a, a magic pill. Hope is a confident expectation knowing that God's promises will come to pass. Paul says to the Colossian church that our hope is reserved in heaven. Everything will be worked out for all will worship him. And that leaves us with love. And love is the greatest. Faith will one day be replaced by sight. Hope will one day be fulfilled in Christ. We no longer need those because they have become our reality. Love is what lasts because it's what we will do forever. The first letter to the Corinthians ends in chapter 16. Paul finishes out with some specific terms of like, you know, housekeeping, make sure you allocate money here, make sure you talk to these people here. Um, you know, he talks through his travel plans a little bit. And, you know, anytime I leave the country, my wife's like, hey, send me your itinerary. So he's doing that. He's sending them his itinerary. He offers up his own personal disciples. He talks about Timothy. He's like, hey, if Timothy comes, be nice to him, please. Um, he offers up them to continue the ministry that he began in Corinth. He greets his friends. He blesses them. And in his closing lines, I want you to take note of how he directs the church in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 16. Be alert. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. But do everything in love. In this present age, though we know a lot of things, we still only know in part. You can be a committed follower of Jesus and still have questions. Our circumstances and our gifting and our disputes and our doubts and our circles and our allegiances and our understanding of spiritual things all comes to an end when we are forever with Jesus. If there's anything we should see from the Corinthians is that they let the little things cloud their view of the main thing. They got lost in the rules of super-Christendom. That they lost sight of the very person of Jesus as displayed by love. Church, that is not the goal of the Christian life. Don't be so taken away by the pursuit of trivial arguments. Don't get so lost in appearing to be spiritual while only truly displaying a form of pseudo-love not backed in intentional action. Don't be so lost in the uncertainty, but instead understand that we have yet to arrive in the fullness of understanding. And until we do, be alert, stand firm, be courageous, be strong, and do everything and love. The one thing we should strive to have now is love because it is the one gift that forever permeates all of history and all of our future. As followers of Christ, we are works in progress and we have yet to arrive, but Jesus did arrive and he revealed himself to us in the form of love. Would you guys stand and bow your heads? I'm curious, does this kind of life, does your, does your life uh, display this kind of love? Is this kind of love flowing through you? Is this kind of love the way that you're categorized and, ca- and characterized? Have you put childish ways behind you in your walk with Jesus? There should be progress. There should be maturity. 
Are you growing as a follower of Jesus? Or is it all about me and my own pleasure? Maybe it's time to grow up in the faith and begin pursuing spiritual maturity. Are you focusing on the things that really matter? Things that will last forever or just the temporary things? Superficial things that you know, only exist in the present are the ones that will pass away. The Corinthians were focusing on spiritual, even good things, but obsessing to the point of missing the things with eternal value. Is your life categorized by faith, hope, but most of all, love? Let's pray together. God, we are so thankful. Thankful that you give us the opportunity to know what love is through your example. We're thankful that we have your word preserved for us to understand exactly what it means to love one another. We're thankful for examples of those who have come before us, both positive and negative, and that they can teach us to not make the mistakes of the past, but instead to pursue holiness in the form of active love. We're thankful for your goodness. We're thankful for your provision. And I ask that all of us collectively can be a true, mature believer, that we can all be true, mature church people, and that this body can be known collectively as one marked and defined by love. Saul and Jesus, and I pray. Amen. Stay standing for me. Let's end this way today. Um, let's recite the Lord's Prayer together. Is up on the screen. Let's do it together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Excellent. And as Pastor's been saying, let's finish with a benediction as we leave. Paul said these very words to the Corinthians in his very next letter. He says to them, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. We are dismissed. We'll see you guys next week.